Welcome to this month's edition of Information's Crossroads podcast. I'm John Burke, America's editor. Uh, after a brief summer hiatus, we are back at it. And to be honest, uh, readers of our newswire service can attest there is a lot to talk about. One development uh, was the continued rise of infrastructure credit as an asset class, as Carlisle and I-squared publicly announced debt platforms with investors uh, to invest in the sector. Uh, infrastructure credits find themselves in a gigantic window of opportunity, but questions linger as to what degree they're going to take advantage of it. Industry experts point to tightening bank regulations pre-COVID as one catalyst, uh, but as 2020 nears its fourth quarter, other elements have surfaced, including public money drying up in the face of COVID, where normally states could rely on taxes to back projects, uh, renewable projects seeking new debt instruments as tax equity dries up, and increased demand in private placements, which uh, have traditionally backed uh, projects with longer tenor. Uh, Global Infrastructure Partners has a debt platform equipped to handle deals of all shapes and sizes, as its Spectrum platform targets secured financings for contracted assets. Second platform, Capital Solutions, uh, targets uh, higher yielding opportunities, including uh, projects with CapEx and construction risk. Here to talk about all of these issues is uh, Jennifer Powers, chair of the credit team, and Reiner Boning, a partner in the group. Uh, guys, thanks for joining the program today. Thanks for having us. Great. So just to start off, if you guys could talk a little bit about um, what sectors that has uh, both platforms have historically targeted and uh, why they've targeted it. Sure, I'll, I'll kick that off and then I'll let uh, Reiner riff on uh, some of the market themes that we're seeing. As you may be aware, uh, GIP has uh, very defined sectors that we specialize in based on the breadth of our platform experience as a pure play infrastructure manager. And they are energy, which is broadly defined to include midstream and downstream, as well as conventional power, and renewables, uh, where we define conventional power to exclude coal and nuclear. We also look at assets in the transportation space, which includes for us, everything ranging from airports, ports, rolling stock, um, logistics assets, and the like. And our smallest sector is water and waste. And in all of these, we look globally, we're a global focused family of funds um, based on dollared, dollarized um, uh, loans. And we have a, an opportunity to participate in a, uh, a small bucket of uh, non-OECD uh, countries uh, infrastructure projects as well. Uh, Reiner, Reiner uh, do you wanna just share some of your views on what we're seeing in, the, in those sectors? Yeah, sure. I, I can do that. And, um, you know, in general, um, you know, just to sort of expand a little bit on what Jennifer was saying, uh, we do uh, traffic sort of up and down the capital structure. Um, so uh, in the sectors that Jennifer mentioned, uh, we uh, basically deploy anything from preferred or structured equity uh, to sub-debt holding company debt to uh, first lien you know, secured financing. Uh, a lot of our activity historically and today continues to center around uh, construction financing, be that uh, in the context of Greenfield 
or in the context of uh, an issuer trying to um, build an additional expansion um, to the existing asset base. Um, so that's an area where we feel um, we have a real um, you know, sort of competitive uh, you know, angle uh, given the breadth of the uh, GIP um, you know, platform and in particular our operating team. Um, you know, the, the other um, aspect um, or the other you know, parts of the value chain where we're really active, um, you know, today um, is in the context of, you know, refinancings um, for companies that, you know, uh, maybe have uh, you know, suffered certain uh, credit events um, in the last, you know, six to 12 months, partly as a result of COVID uh, and uh, maybe under ratings pressure. Um, and for those companies, you know, we can provide, um, you know, uh, flexible um, liquidity or refinancing capital um, to really sort of bridge, um, you know, through this period of um, of challenges. And uh, so those are, I think, the, the two uh, most critical um, areas of, of focus for us right now. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I was going to ask you uh, guys how COVID-19 has uh, changed your approach uh, Reiner, you do mention refinancing as one area. Has there been other um, other areas yeah. where you've seen an increased demand uh, for for your type of uh, product? Yeah, and and I you know COVID has been interesting, right? You know, um, and um, I think there's uh, there's sort of different phases. Uh, if I think about um, you know the phase right after the lockdown, which for us you know um, sort of happened in early March, and I'm sure for other. Um, people as well. Um, from early March through, I'd say May, um, you know, the the opportunity set was really um, very much dominated um, by uh, a complete dislocation, you know, in the capital markets, uh, lack of access to really, you know, any form of uh, of, uh, of capital. Um, many companies in our target sectors, you know, looking for, you know, uh, near-term liquidity. Uh, and or trying to address, you know, upcoming uh, refinancing maturities, you know, very uh, proactively. Um, and so that, you know, three months period really saw a lot of opportunistic, you know, sort of deal flow. Um, and uh, in addition, we also saw, um, and, and this is one of the areas that you know, we can focus on as well, is, you know, some secondary, um, you know, opportunities, you know, with many of the um, the loans, in uh, in the midstream sector, for example, or the power sector, having traded down uh, quite significantly and trading at you know substantial discounts to to par value, and so um, we evaluated uh, a whole host of you know those kinds of situations. Uh, after the Fed stepped in and uh, really provided uh, sort of unprecedented liquidity, uh, in particular to you know um, to the high yield market. Um, the uh, you know, the tone in the markets you know changed dramatically, uh, and uh, you know when you uh, look at you know the activity in the capital markets today, uh, it's uh, it's really 180 degrees from where it was in uh, in March and April. So um, the spigot is open, and uh, you know most of the companies that were looking for um, alternative uh, private capital uh, early in the lockdown, um, you know. Uh, now um, not under that kind of pressure anymore. So um, it's a different fact pattern, um, you know, given the, the overall tone in the markets. Um, you know, for us, that you know, really has meant that a lot of the, um, the soft transactional opportunistic uh, deal flow 
has fallen by the wayside, and we're back to you know our core business, which is you know really centered around um, you know fundamentally financing um, you know, um, infrastructure businesses you know for their uh, capex needs. Uh, we see some acquisition activity and acquisition financing activity, yeah, and just you know, goals oriented um, financings. And uh, you know, geographically, um, you know, it's been you know, really uh, mostly America's driven. You know, so uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know, Southern Cone, um, you know, Mexico. We've done uh, uh, investments in Colombia and Uruguay, uh, and uh, we've been quite active uh, here in the U.S. as well. I, I would just chime in on that, John, to say that the other aspect of COVID impact uh, that is worth highlighting is, you know, this, as Reiner indicated, we're, we're kind of back to our fundamental strategy and our regular way blocking and tackling and serving the needs of borrowers who, frankly, are, are not able to access, you know, bank capital or, or more liquid forms of term loan B or bond market capital as a function of you know, a whole host of issues ranging from deal size being too small uh, for perceived liquidity in those markets, not being rated, not having um, you know, a, a significant uh, fee wallet share for banks to pay attention to. There's, there's a lot of reasons why borrowers in our space may not be able to tap into you know, the, that very low cost capital uh, despite you know what we've we've seen the the Fed uh, you know do to to bolster liquidity, um, so you know again back to the fundamental strategy which you mentioned at the outset you know driven by um, shifts since the Great Financial Crisis in terms of how banks and uh, traditional sources of capital price their capital. Um, I would say that the other uh, significant uh, impact. Uh, from our perspective to the opportunity set that we're looking at is, you know, we, we have a, a fundamental view that, you know, the COVID impact globally and in, certainly in, in the Americas will continue to have, you know, a long tail on impact. And as such, you know, we continue to look for opportunities that will be resilient through a long-term recovery. And, you know, all things being equal, I would say that, you know, our ideal borrower is someone who's looking for, you know, that proverbial capital solution and that we can work with to customize um, the right credit package while giving them the liquidity they need and providing us with the downside protection that we need, you know, to, to kind of weather the next uh, two, three, four, five years. Great, appreciate that. So, in terms of um, greenfield developments, how do you envision infrastructure credit funds playing in this particular field? And uh, I know we, we talked about P3s before we came on the program, but I'm not. I'm talking about that in, in terms of a broader overview of just infrastructure development and greenfield opportunities. Is there an opportunity for infrastructure credit funds, or do you think it's still not space for you guys? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's our bread and butter. Um, when we think about what our value add is to an infrastructure borrower who is embarking on a capex growth plan, a brownfield expansion, 
um, whatever that that kind of spade in the ground looks like, um, that's where we can add a tremendous amount of value. And and that's really a function of our unique structure at GIP, where we have a very deep operating team uh, with, you know, decades, decades, decades of experience in helping manage um, complex infrastructure projects from kind of cradle to, you know, maturity and optimization. And on the equity side of our house, that has really been about optimizing performance of those assets to achieve better upside returns. And on the credit side of the house, we take that same team and are able to deploy that knowledge base to help us craft you know, more thoughtful, better downside protections and work with borrowers to, to grapple with risks and issues that frankly may not be issues and risks that banks and other capital providers are comfortable with. So I, we think we're uniquely positioned to provide that type of value add support to infrastructure borrowers. But Certainly, you know, more broadly within the infrastructure credit space, you know, our, our competitors, you know, are also willing to grapple with some of those risks, perhaps not all, because they don't have, you know, the same type of operating team that we do. But, you know, that is a natural, uh, a natural um, uh, type of transaction for, you know, infrastructure credit funds. Great. I noticed that uh, you, you pointed out Latin America earlier, uh, Renner, uh, which we've actually covered in information. Um, can you um, talk about uh, how you guys approach the Latin American market, uh, particularly how, you know, say national policy plays into the decision-making process? And, uh, you know, if you could just talk a little bit about your, your investment thesis there. Yeah, so uh, as Jennifer mentioned at the outset, you know, we are primarily focused on OECD countries um, with a, um, a small sort of carve-out, if you will, for non-OECD jurisdictions. So um, if you think about the OECD countries in Latin America, you're basically talking about uh, Mexico, Chile, Colombia now. Um, and those are all um, countries you know, where we have been very active Um Historically and, and currently, both on the equity as well as on the on the debt side. Um, and then, as you sort of mentioned outside, you know the OECD jurisdictions. You know we tend to focus on countries that you know essentially have uh, very stable um, you know, quasi investment grade or explicitly investment grade um, you know, credit profiles. So, so Uruguay is a good example there. And uh, you know, for us uh, as a as a credit provider, it's obviously uh, paramount um, to make sure that we invest in a um, in a jurisdiction that has you know a pretty stable you know, underlying jurisdictional environment and uh, the ability to you know, to exercise your rights if uh, if that ever you know uh, was necessary. In terms of you know, the projects that we tend to focus on, yeah, you know, we tend to focus on on projects that you know, have a lot of you know, economic multiplier uh, effects uh, and commercial viability. So what do I mean by that? When you look at uh, our two most recent transactions in, in Latin America, uh, we've done a, um, a second lien financing for a trade rail uh, PPP in, uh, in Uruguay. And we have uh, provided a holding company term loan for a greenfield uh, build out of a port in Colombia. So in both of those situations, the underlying projects are of um, you know, significant um, you know, economic uh, development benefit you know, to um, 
the underlying uh, you know, regions and, and countries. Uh, in Uruguay, um, the freight rail that's being built is uh, is operating under a long-term concession uh, provided by the Uruguayan uh, government. Uh, it is um, you know provide, basically providing a freight rail link uh, from a uh, multi-billion-dollar uh, you know, pulp project that's being built uh, in uh, in central Uruguay to Montevideo, and uh, once up and running, um, you know will you know, uh, be a not insignificant contributor you know, to the overall GDP of the country. So that's that's a good fact panel for us. And the concession that's been provided by the Uruguayan government is exceptionally strong. Uh, and then um, the underlying financing here is being provided by the Inter-American Development Bank. And we personally, as well as institutionally, have an exceptionally you know, good relationship with the Inter-American Development and other multilateral agencies and take a you know, not insignificant amount of comfort from the fact that the IEDP is a lender to this project, has been betting the project for you know, a significant amount of time, in, in some cases years, and you know, almost feel like it provides a certain degree of political risk insurance just by virtue of the fact that the, that the IEDP, uh, Inter-American Development Bank, is a, is a, a lender to this project. So um, those kinds of factors... Um, you know, so a, a, a very strong um, alignment of incentives between us and, uh, and uh, you know, the, uh, the concession provider, uh, a, you know, sort of standalone commercial viability of the underlying project, and then strong, you know, partners that, you know, we can uh, team up with. Um, those are all factors that, um, you know, play very, very um, you know, prominently in our decision-making process. Um, and, uh, you know, I could, you know, basically apply that same sort of pattern that I just described, you know, to the port financing we did in Colombia, um, where the IADB, the Inter-American Development Bank, uh, was also the underlying project finance uh, provider. Um, it had been uh, evaluating the, the project for the better part of two years. And, you know, interestingly, that project, uh, was the, the first project in, in the history of the IADB that scored a, perfect 10 out of 10 on both the economic impact scale as well as on commercial viability scale. So it's those kinds of you know, high, vo- high value opportunities where we can bring our uh, greenfield construction expertise you know, to bear and, and really team up you know, with these kinds of, uh, of providers that you know, are very critical to us. Excellent. Thank you. Circling back to the U.S., you know, we're about six weeks removed from a federal election coming up. Just wondering if you guys are seeing anything in the tea leaves right now in terms of the infrastructure plans being promoted through both candidates that you believe could lead to a more unified federal infrastructure policy. Certainly curious to hear your views on this. Uh, as I mentioned before we started the show, Reiner and I were kind of comparing notes on that, and I think we'd, we're a little reluctant to make predictions. Um, but you know, one of the, I think one of the things when we think about you know the current administration that you know puzzled a lot of people in the early days, the first hundred days, if you will, it was that you know the Trump administration didn't you know undertake what should have been a win-win bipartisan effort around infrastructure, because, you know, that, that should be, you know, motherhood and apple pie. Everybody's, you know, can agree that 
it needs to be dealt with. But, you know, there were different priorities around healthcare and tax reform, which, you know, obviously uh, took up a lot of time and political energy. I, I mean, I, I, I haven't seen anything yet that, you know, impresses me that anyone has a, a really thought out, actionable plan to deliver to the Congress, you know, February 6th. But, you know, I, I think it continues to be an absolute truism that whoever wins the White House in November, you know, should have a broad based mandate to, you know, to really be creative and thoughtful and then in a, an economy that needs, you know, not a small kick in the pants from a from a fiscal standpoint, since we're quite frankly running out of tools in the toolkit on monetary policy. So, uh, you know, I, I I think the time has come, you know, by virtue of COVID, you know, the economic cycle, whatever, pick your poison you you want to you know point a finger at, and I would certainly hope that you know we would see the opportunity to you know, advance that ball nationally. Uh, what it looks like compared to, you know, the experiences in, you know, mainland Europe, the UK, Canada, any place else, you know, again, isn't clear to me, but I think it's it's overdue. And while that's not an area that, you know, we you know, think that our current price tag of capital is necessarily going to be effective, given, you know, the likely, um, government support that would go along with any concession and or sale of assets. Um, you know, it's it's something that we're going to keep a, a very close eye on. Um, and the other thing that, you know, clearly is is, uh, you know, uh, we alluded to at the at the onset is these things are, do take time to to move forward. Um, so even if someone marches into Congress, you know, in the early in the new administration and says, this is what we're going to do, takes a, a lot of rubber on the road to, to actually get something to be actionable. So I'm, I'm not personally holding my breath, but I think it's timely. You asked about, you know, sort of uh, the importance of Greenfield. And the irony is that yeah, other than the renewable sector, you know, the 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 sectors where we probably need the most uh, greenfield or construction capital are the sectors that would be covered as part of a you know an infrastructure bill, right? And so you're thinking about water and waste, you're thinking about toll roads, bridges, you know, things like that. And you know, the irony is that you know, absent a real you know mandate and uh, and something that is uh, you know, really incentivizes you know, capital providers like you know like uh, like ourselves um, to deploy capital um, you know it it is unclear to me at least you know uh, to what extent that actually will materialize right and so that's that's the that's the sad part of it yeah i mean the the final thought i'd leave with you on this is that if anything um you know from those early days when there was an infrastructure plan being uh, carved in the White House in 2018. If anything, from that launching point, and that was sort of in the first quarter, uh, the universe of investors has expanded even. So at the very least, to your point, uh, Jennifer, of it taking time, at the very least, I'm saying again, <laughs> is that uh, there's a lot of people that are ready to put deploy capital to, to work uh, when, when the time comes. Um, and so on that note, um, Ryan or Jennifer, I thank you uh, so much for coming on the program and uh, we'll hope to speak to you again soon. Awesome. Thanks for thank having you. us. And we look forward to continuing the dialogue as, as we move forward into 
what we hope is a brave new world. Great. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And so uh, very uh, nuanced views on the election from the GIP team. We switch over to the USP3 conference, uh, which is finally at hand virtually on October 5th and 6th, where we are going to present two full days, usually with stuff that you'll see from P3, but um, you'll have to watch it through the screen. So our keynote speaker, uh, just to be clear, will be the president of the American Society of Civil Engineers, Dr. Gunalan. Uh, and then we have a loaded opening panel as always, um, chaired by Doug Fried of Norton Rose, including uh, Marcus Lemon, now of the US Department of Energy, uh, Naraya Haltawager of ACS North America, uh, Sandeep Gobalan of Macquarie, uh, Marteza Farajan, Executive Director of the Build America Bureau, before we talk about the rest of the slate, uh, I wanted to make mention to you of a newer uh, addition to the program this year is our market sounding um, uh, lectures, which are going to be given on, on at least three distinct programs, possibly a fourth. Uh, for now, um, you're going to hear uh, Rick Mead, uh, executive officer of LA Metro, uh, talking about their uh, massive LRT expansion plans. And um, my colleague, Abby Miller, will get into that in in a little bit, as well as John Hibbert of the Georgia Department of Transportation and discussing the uh, mobile mobility program down in Georgia. And finally, coming from PennDOT, we will hear from Michael Benini, uh, director of um, the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation, uh, talking about uh, his looming uh, project there, the IV1. Uh, so we hope we'll join, join you for that. Uh, you can find more information uh, on our website um, about the uh, agenda. So uh, just to give you a little flavor of what we're going to be talking about, um, Abby, uh, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. We have a, um, a busy fall and possibly an even busier 2021, depending how, of course, how the tea leaves go. Uh, we're obviously not in uncertain times concerning both the economy and how COVID is going to affect the economy. Uh, but nevertheless, we have seen states and universities, you know, they're not, they're not waiting for federal policy to dictate what they're going to do. They're going out and, and searching for, you know, their own projects. Um, the DOTs naturally have led the way. Um, and it's why I think you're seeing a lot of um, the market soundings coming, emanating from them. Um, but also universities and other other municipalities. Um, so, Abby, why don't you just give us uh, a little bit of what we can expect in terms of these procurement processes over um, the second half of the year? Yeah, so this is obviously far from all of the projects. Um, that would take much longer than the promised 30 minutes to go through. But a couple of the projects that we're going to see hopefully advance through the rest of the year. Um, you mentioned LA Metro, there's the Sebulveda Pass project. Um, the RFP responses have been returned and they expect to award the contract sometime in the fourth quarter of this year. Of course, that is just the first part of an extensive project. So even if the preferred proponent is announced before the end of the year, it will probably be quite a while before they reach financial close. Um, also in California, in San Francisco, they just launched the 
Potrero bus yard project, uh, and RFQs for that will be due on October 15th. Um, coming a little further east, they have there's the two major Miami projects that are part of the SMART plan. Uh, the Miami-Dade Dolphin Stadium Transit-Oriented Development Project, um, RFPs were returned, so they could pick a preferred proponent and award the contract for the end of the year. And the Miami Beach Trunk Line P3, uh, they expect a contract award by the end of the year. There's also the North Carolina Rural Broadband Project, which that one has an asterisk by it because we're not 100% sure it's going P3. They're doing kind of a dual procurement process where they're looking at design, build, and P3. Um, however, if they go the P3 route, or I suppose regardless, they expect to pick a preferred proponent and announce that in October. Another couple of asterisks, um, over the summer in Hawaii, uh, the Aloha Stadium received responses to the RFP and have the preferred proponent expected by the end of the year. Um, also, the Heart P3 project, the Rapid Transit project, uh, the preferred proponent is supposed to be selected before the end of the year. Um, those, like I said, both have kind of an asterisk by them because there has been a little bit of local news that has suggested that one or more, one or both of those projects may not end up moving forward as quickly, but as far as we know that they are going to. And then of course, I have to mention the I-495, uh, I-95 Capital Beltway project. Um, that project is supposed to see the final RFP issued in December of this year. Um, and as anyone who's been following it knows, that's quite a long time coming. Yeah, and uh, just to be specific for our readers, um, and our listeners that that um, you know both the the Capital Beltway, it's which is phase one again of a very much uh, elongated project, uh, and Sepulveda, um, you know the proponent selection is just merely the beginning of of a process. There, I mean, they're going to select a proponent and then they're going to negotiate, you know, on proper you know design um, and, and capex, and you know all that's going to you know. It's it's not, 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 no ditch is going to be dug, you know. We think in 2021 concerning these projects, or possibly, you know, towards the end of it. But um, there's there's obviously that intermediate step of developing the project and and sorting it out with um, the municipal officials about getting the proper uh, capex in place. Um, and for Sepulveda, Spalveda, that's under a progressive um, contract, um, which is how it's being procured. Um, and uh, it seems like phase one of the Capitol Beltway, it might be similar there. Right. Anyway, it, either way, it's um, certainly a lot of things to talk about uh, heading into the fall season. And um, we uh, look forward to um, everyone joining us online uh, for the virtual USP3 2020. Uh, Abby, thanks for uh, coming onto the program today. And uh, yep, we'll, thanks for having me. we'll uh, look forward to hearing from you guys next time around. Perk out.